Open your Bibles, if you will, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 4. While my text for the evening is primarily focused on verse 16, I'd like to read the chapter in its entirety and then go to the Lord in prayer. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. Bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, that is, of those who believe. These things command and teach. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's seek his face in prayer, please. Our gracious Father, we we come before you empty-handed. We seek your blessing. We desire it. But we have nothing in ourselves that could compel you to give it. If we lifted but the best of our merits before you, they are only worthy for our condemnation and for our rejection. If all of us together, Father, brought the best of our deeds as one people, yet we are untogether unprofitable. Our hope this evening, Father, and our desire that you would bless us, is that you will see us through the love of your Son, Jesus Christ. That you will minister to us 
by His merits, by His intercession on our behalf, that You, from the love which, with, with which You have loved us from all eternity, will bless us. Our confidence is in that love. We believe and trust that Your Word will accomplish its end because of Your love. We praise You and exalt You in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. My topic for this evening is the minister's expectation of success. Most of us have experience with that word success of a very negative connotation. That when we think of success, we think of what we have been programmed to think of. Numbers, money, building programs, and denominational notoriety. Having turned away from that, we realize that that is not biblical success at all. But the temptation is to go to the other extreme. That shunning those definitions of success, we shun all definitions of success. That not pursuing worldly religiosity and its ideas of success, we pursue none at all. That giving up on the idea that we can expect our numbers to rise if we will only follow a certain program, that very often we give up expecting anything. And cover this with the garb, with the, with the cloak of God's sovereignty. I'm going to try to make the point this evening that that is an unbiblical perspective. That rather the minister has every reason to expect biblical success in his ministry. And that it is not only desirable that we expect it, but that such an expectation is necessary for our work as ministers. That if we enter into the ministry without expecting God's blessings on our work, we will either deviate from the path of what God has ordained for us to do as ministers, finding some way of producing success on our own, or we will become discouraged and give up, either outwardly or inwardly. We should, as ministers, expect God's blessings and come into our task of preaching and administering the ordinances and public prayer and reading of the Scriptures with that joyful expectation of God's help. This week we've heard a lot about the means of grace. I'm going to review briefly for one very simple reason. That I think if I can knit together some of the ideas that have already been said this week and put them into a chain, that you'll see that what I have to say is, uh, pardon the term, no-brainer. It's like 
One, two, three, four, five. Duh. And that's really it. I, I could probably make that the entire sermon and, and walk away. But I will, of course, want to give scriptural support to the conclusion. In other words, systematic theology is not sufficient, of course. We don't preach theology. We open the Word of God. And there is, therein is our hope of blessing. So here's what we've heard. First of all, the means of grace are those things that are, are ordained of Jesus Christ. As one of the criteria of which we speak. There are other means which God uses and will use to save His elect and sanctify His people. We are not saying, and I don't believe Scripture says, that's more important than we, Scripture does not teach that the means of grace are the only avenues or instruments that God ever uses. We are saying that the means of grace are those things which Jesus Christ has instituted. Secondly, that they have a promised blessing attached to them. That because Christ has given them, He has given them to us or to His church for our good. Christ is for us. And so He promises His blessing. Third, this blessing is nothing more than Christ Himself. That the promise attached to the the means of grace is nothing more than the impartation of the merits, the work, and indeed union or communion with Christ Himself. Last night, Dr. Barcellus uh, put it brilliantly and plainly. This is the issue, my terminology for it is what I call the exalted and yet present tension of Jesus Christ. Christ is exalted. He is ruler and owner of all things. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And yet, He is in heaven and I'm not. He is at the right hand of God and I'm on earth. He is exalted and I am as yet an unexalted sinner. How do I receive the benefits of Christ? How do they come to me? How is Christ imparted to me? And the answer is, Christ Himself gives us the means for that. The means of grace. So they are ordained of Christ. They come with a promised blessing in the Word. That blessing is Christ Himself imparted to us. Fourth, what this means is that the means of grace are essential and indispensable. Other means that may be used of God or other means that may be used by the church may very well be helpful, but are not essential. Let me give you an example. Some of our churches have very active and very profitable counseling ministries. In large part, I don't think every church should pursue that kind of ministry based on one simple reason. You may not have gifted men to that end. Cloning does not yet exist. And Daryl Gustafson is not willing to give up his DNA to that purpose. There is a tremendous counseling ministry which God has used under, under him in that church. 
But to say that counseling ministries are now essential simply because God uses them in one place is unbiblical. But the means of grace are essential because Christ has commanded them. All churches must preach the Word of God, administer the ordinances, baptism, Lord's Supper. All churches must pray. All churches must give attention to these things. This is why Dr. Renahan related or connected the idea of the means of grace to the regulative principle of worship. These two things go hand in hand. If you believe the one, you will believe the other. So, Christ has ordained them. They promise a blessing, which is the impartation of Christ Himself. That is the blessing. They are essential and they are sufficient. The means of grace are not just indispensable, but they are by themselves sufficient to accomplish the blessing promised. Any other means that may be used are not sufficient in themselves. Again, back to the idea of counseling. If a church does not decide to pursue a counseling ministry, and there are many of your churches that do not, some churches very intentionally relegate counseling to what goes on in the pulpit from the pastor. Are they somehow insufficient because all they have is the means of grace? The means of grace by themselves are sufficient to accomplish the purpose which Christ has for His people. Now, if you put that chain together, that Christ has ordained it, that He has promised a blessing in connection with their use, that they are essential and sufficient, then I think the answer to the question, does the minister have a biblical warrant to expect success in his ministry, is a very obvious, well, of course. Let me give you a few qualifications as to how I understand my topic, and then we'll get into 1 Timothy chapter 4 a little bit. When asked, does the minister have a biblical warrant to expect success in his ministry? First and foremost, we must understand that the expectation that we're speaking of is of the minister's expectation. We're not talking about does the church have a right to expect success? Or do associations have that right? Does the individual minister of Christ have a warrant to expect success from his ministry? It's a minister's expectation. Secondly, it's a balanced expectation. It is not presumption on one hand, nor is it carelessness, excuse me, nor is it fear and um, trepidation on the other. I personally don't like the word sacramental or sacrament, but it's a matter of semantics. Because in my mind, sacramentalism or sacraments are the you do it and it works thing. Now, I realize a lot of good men don't use the word that way. That's the way I use it. I, that's my background. So I kind of you know, get the shudders when I hear the word, but I understand. That's just me. 
When we talk about the means of grace, we are not talking about that kind of sacramentalism. My definition, where it just, it just works because you do it. It's not presumption. It's a balanced expectation. We are not allowed to be careless and yet just expect success. Paul's going to bring that out First 1 Timothy chapter 4. Just as an individual Christian has a promise that he or she will be conformed to the image of Christ, and yet may not be presumptuous in that, but must make use of means to pursue sanctification and holiness. So the minister has a promise that his ministry will be blessed, and yet he may not be presumptuous in it. It is a balanced expectation. Third, it's a spiritual expectation. The success of which we speak is not necessarily numbers or any other things we've listed. I'm going to define spiritual success as the salvation of the elect and the progressive sanctification of the converted. The salvation of the elect and the progressive sanctification of the converted. A minister has, in my understanding of the word, a biblical warrant to expect that kind of success from his ministry. Fourth, it is means-based. You knew I was going to get there. The minister may expect to see the salvation of the elect and the sanctification of the saved through these means of grace. And it is an overall expectation, meaning that we don't take a snapshot of one individual Lord's Day and expect to see large increase in sanctification in our hearers. It's an overall ministry thing. And again, these ideas come, I believe, from our passage of Scripture as we will work through them. So this is the idea then of success. Is it true that the minister may fully expect this kind of success in his ministry? Well, it doesn't prove the point, but quotes are always helpful illustrations. Horatius Bonar wrote, Words to Winners of Souls. If you haven't read it, read it. Listen to this. The end for which we first took our office as ministers was the saving of souls. The means to this end are the holy life and faithful fulfillment of our ministry. The connection between these two things, the saving of souls and the means of the holy life and ministry, the connection between these two is sure. We are entitled to calculate upon it. We are called upon to pray and labor with the confident expectation of its being realized. Success is attainable. Success is desirable. Success is promised by God. Charles Bridges, The Christian Ministry. A book that every minister ought to read on a regular basis. In the part two of that book, entitled General Causes of the Want of Success in the Christian Ministry, chapter one is entitled The Scriptural Warrant and Character of Ministerial Success. 
Bridges says this, It may be laid as the ground of our inquiry that the warrant of ministerial success is sure. This indeed is involved in the character of our work while it supplies the spring to diligence and perseverance in it. Meaning that the very character of how we perform our task as ministers is determined by whether we believe our success is warranted from God's promises. Now, Bridges gives several reasons why to believe this warrant. And I'm not going to go through those. I'll ask you and highly suggest again that you read the book on a regular basis. But he does give one reason why some do not believe in this warrant of success. And he puts it this way. That they set God's sovereignty in opposition to his faithfulness. Listen to Bridges. We have the warrant of success. The divine sovereignty is the righteous government of a faithful God. We must not therefore place His sovereignty in opposition to His faithfulness. Some seed shall fall on good ground. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. The promise is sealed to the exercise of faith. Now, what does Bridges mean by that we take God's sovereignty and put it in opposition to His faithfulness? Let me give you an illustration of this. And we've all done it, and we all know someone who has done it. person comes to understand God's sovereignty in election, and they agree with it. They see it as a biblical doctrine. But then they immediately begin to doubt their salvation based on what? Well, I don't know if God has elected me. I believe in God's sovereignty. But what are they doing? They're putting His sovereignty in opposition to His faithfulness. His covenant promises. They agree. God elects to salvation. But whether God has chosen them personally, I don't know. Similarly, some ministers firmly believe that the preaching is primary. That God will sovereignly bless ministry. That God will bless preaching. They may even believe in the means of grace. But whether He will choose to bless their preaching, I don't know. They don't know. Bridges says that's trying to take one character of God and make it fight against the other. God who is sovereign is sovereign for us. Christ is exalted at God's right hand to pray for us. Ephesians 1, 19-22, which has already been referred to tells us about God's mighty power which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. He put all things under His feet and gave Him to be head over all things to the church. 
that doesn't just mean that Jesus Christ is head over all things as far as the church is concerned. It means He is head over all things for the church. Jesus Christ rules and reigns for us. Belief in God's sovereignty without belief in His promises is dreadful. It's frightening. And we must not put these two in opposition. Our Supreme Lord is exalted so that He might fill His church and provide for her because He loves her. Christ loves His church with an eternal, unfathomable, and unshakable love. He has provided for her good, her eternal good, by giving Himself and by giving pastors and teachers. And if He loves the church and has provided for her, will He not bless her? And do we not as ministers who are the gifts and the agents which Christ has given to the church, do we not then have the right to expect blessing? Now, just in all honesty, if you said Christ loves His church and He's giving you as a gift to prove it, I want the receipt so I can go take it back and exchange it for another gift. Gentlemen, you are proof that God loves His church because He has gifted you with an ability to minister the means of grace. There is a fundamental distinction between minister and people in the pew. And it is the giftedness of God as proof that He loves His church. Is it biblical to think of a scriptural warrant for ministerial success? I firmly believe it is. And that that confidence is not just warranted, but necessary for our encouragement and properly fulfilling the task of the ministry. Look, if you will, then, 1 Timothy 4 and verse 16. Yes, I'm just now through with the introduction. The... Um, Schedule says adjournment at 9 o'clock. I'm hoping that's not optimistic. I'm, I'm just teasing. Relax. Strange sense of humor. 1 Timothy 4.16 Take heed to yourself and to the teaching, the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Four things I want to draw from this text and from the chapter in general. It's not going to be an exposition of the chapter. It's kind of just an overview. But I think it will make the point. 
First, there is a biblical warrant to expect success in the ministry. Notice Paul's words. You will save both yourself and those that hear you. There is a biblical warrant to expect this kind of success in the ministry. Secondly, this success is contingent upon our taking heed to ourselves. That is, temperance, self-control, godliness of the minister. The degree of success and in the extreme case of lack of godliness entirely, the, the, the giving of success is contingent upon taking heed to ourselves. Third, this success is contingent upon taking heed to the teaching. And the word, I think, should be translated as teaching, not doctrine. The word teaching has an idea of intergenerational uh, of teaching from one generation to another. Christ to the apostles, the apostles to Timothy, Timothy on down. And it is both the content and the act of teaching that's involved. Fourth, Success is contingent upon consistency in number two and number three. Long-term consistency in godliness and taking heed to the teaching. There is a biblical warrant to expect it. You will save yourself and those who hear you. It is contingent upon taking heed to ourself, exercising ourselves unto godliness. It is contingent upon taking heed to the teaching And finally, it is contingent upon consistency, long-term consistency, if you will, in both of those two uh, two and three. Let's take them one at a time, if you will. There is a biblical warrant for us to expect success in the preaching ministry. Paul writes, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. First of all, the word save. You will save the faithful minister will save himself and his hearers. Obviously, we are not saying that the minister takes the, the place of Christ. There is no vicarious work of redemption on the part of the minister. That's not what's meant here. Nor should we take save in a very narrow sense of regeneration only. Else, we are saying that the minister regenerates himself or is the agent of his own regeneration implying what? That he must be unsaved to be a minister. Rather, salvation or the word save should be taken in the larger context of all that's involved with salvation in this life. And I'm going to very, perhaps overly simplistically, summarize that as conversion and sanctification. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save, that is, convert or sanctify, both yourself and those that hear you. So the definition of success, according to this verse, is salvation of the elect and sanctification of the saved. But note, if you will, the future tense verb. Yes, it is true that the emphasis is on those who are saved. Uh, The Greek word order, both yourself you will save and those who hear you. But nonetheless, the future tense verb does carry the idea of sureness or certainty with it. Timothy, by doing this, will 
save himself. The New American Standard puts it this way. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those that hear you. There is a teaching of certainty in this verse. Now, those that hear you are not just those who sit in front of us and have auditory sound waves hit their ears. It is those that hearken or heed to the word. Faith is the necessary element for the proper reception of the means of grace. It is not, as I use the term, sacramentalism. It is not the presumptive uh, do it and it works. It is also important to note that both contingencies that Paul mentions in verse 16 are necessary for both ends. Paul is not saying, take heed to yourself and that's how you'll sanctify yourself. Take heed to the teaching and that's how you'll sanctify your hearers. Rather, taking heed to yourself and to the doctrine that's been delivered to you, the teaching that has come to you, is how you sanctify yourself. Taking heed to yourself and to the teaching is how you sanctify your hearers. Both are necessary for each one. Paul's uh, message of certainty, however, is clear. You will save both yourself and those that hear you. The faithful minister has a warrant to expect spiritual success in his ministry. Now, there are a lot of instruments which God may use to save and sanctify. Let me tell you a story. A gentleman I knew said that he was saved coming out of a bar just drunk enough to be stumbling. You know, not where you fell down, but just kind of wobbly. He was disgusted with himself and he was disgusted with life, according to his words. And a gospel track blew up against his pant leg. It was one of those God's plan of salvation tracks, Romans Road kind of thing. And, you know, the track has four pages to it. This is a poor representation of it, but, you know, front and it opens up. And so the crease of the track caught on his pant leg because of the wind. He said he tried to shake it off. He didn't know what it was, and it wouldn't wouldn't shake. So he bent down to pick it up, and as he did, he was going to throw it away, and he noticed the title, God's Plan of Salvation. He read it, took it home, sobered up, and read it again, and was converted. However, The fact that God sometimes uses blowing gospel tracts to save people is no justification to start a ministry of tract dropping. I knew a guy that did that. God's Word does promise that if we take heed to ourselves and to the doctrine and continue in them, we will save ourselves and our hearers. And there is every reason to pursue that ministry. 
Second, then, the warrant for ministerial success presupposes that we are taking heed to ourselves. I think this is pretty much self-explanatory, but a few thoughts. Literally, the word means to grab a hold of yourself, to, to take something firmly in hand. It's usually translated as to take heed, to pay attention, to focus your attention on yourself. That is, to fix your mind on the character of your life. To study your life and by self-discipline, by the fruit of the Spirit known as temperance, to pursue godliness. Paul gives three areas in this chapter, or at least three that I'm going to mention anyway, in which this should be done. In verse 8, bodily exercise, physical discipline. Now, I know Paul says it's of little profit, and I know he puts it last. He does not say it's of no profit. The simple fact of the matter is, generally, unless you're a Spurgeon or a Timothy, we become more fit for the office of a minister the longer we live and fight against our own sins. A short life is rarely an effective life. And God has brought that point home to me very forcefully lately. Secondly, spiritual discipline. That is, that we make the pursuit of holiness a regular exertion and practice. So, in verse 8, bodily exercise profits a little. Godliness is profitable for all things. Having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Timothy is to do this and he's to command and to teach it. Verse 11. So the pursuit of this type of discipline is something which is not just private for Timothy. It is something he is to do so that he may teach others how to do it. How does a minister know how to instruct his hearers in the pursuit of godliness? Because he himself has done it. How does he know how to instruct them in waging war against sins? Because he himself has been tempted and given in to sin. And fought against it and pursued godliness. Physical discipline, there's spiritual discipline. The last one, ministerial discipline. Verse 14, do not neglect the gift that is in you. Calvin says on this verse, to neglect the gift means to carelessly leave it unemployed through slothfulness. John Trapp's commentary refers to Zechariah 11.17, which says, Woe to the worthless and idle shepherd, worthless shepherd. His arms shall completely wither. His right eye shall be totally blinded. John Trapp says, God dries up the arm and darkens the eye of idle shepherds. But notice that it is the gift that is to be stirred up. Paul does not say stir yourself up. This isn't a self-cheerleading session. He's not saying, Timothy, go into the bathroom, look in the mirror and go, yes, I can do it. Okay, Stir up the gift. The gift of what? The gift that was in you through what? Laying on of hands. The gift that recognizes you through the presbytery. The recognized gift of being a minister of God. And especially preaching the Word. Stir up the gift of preaching and ministering. 
Now, there are a lot of ways that that can be done. of Cultivating this gift, of stoking it, if you will. Reading, studying. I'm going to mention two, and both of them deal not with our studying of theology, but studying the art of preaching. If all we read is theology, and though we become masters of theology, if we are not communicators, we are not preachers. We must study books on the art of communication. How often have we sought feedback on our preaching? T. David Gordon has a book, Why Johnny Can't Preach. It's a good book. I actually don't agree with his cause, but he has a great analysis of the problem. And in it, he suggests that the preacher gets feedback on his preaching from his congregation. Ineffective communication places a burden on our people. If we love them as Christ loves them, learn to communicate. Preach. Ministerial discipline. Read, study, think, pray, pursue godliness, self-control, discipline. This is one of the contingents. The second, take heed to the teaching. That which as Christ has taught the apostles and to Timothy and so on. That which we firmly hold to. And then both the content and the act of teaching to others. To take heed to the teaching means that we make sure we teach Christ alone. If you go back up in this chapter and look at verses 1-6, through six, those that depart from the faith are doing what? Quick summary. They are teaching that God can be pleased with us if we do this. That we can earn God's favor based on what we do. That's a very broad summary of it. To take Heed to the teaching means that we teach Christ and Christ alone. We stand in the pulpit and say, Thus says the Lord. If our teaching is in error, then what dread accountability are we to give on the last day? On the other hand, consider the privilege that you have to open the Word of God to your people and say, this is what the invisible God is like. The man, the Savior, whom you've never seen, this is what He's like. And you have the gift and the privilege to do just that. Take heed to our teaching not only by respecting the doctrine of Christ, but also by taking heed to how we read the Scriptures. In verse 
13. Till I come, give attention to reading. This I take as public reading of Scripture, not individual reading. For two reasons. One, Timothy is told to take heed to it. Timothy is the pastor, the minister. You take heed to reading. Secondly, the theme of 1 Timothy is how Timothy is to behave in the house of God. This is how you conduct the church. Give attention to reading. Our confession, chapter 22, uh, paragraph 5, lists the parts of religious worship and it begins with the reading of the Scriptures. This is a crucial part of our teaching. Public reading is a means of instruction. How you read the passage should give meaning of the passage. The greatest or one of the greatest encouragements I ever received was from a church member who told me that he learned more from hearing me read one chapter of the Bible each Lord's Day than from his privately reading 21 chapters every week on his own. Follow the advice of what an old preacher told me. When you read the Bible... Read it the way God wrote it. If need be, practice. If need be, stand in the bathroom with your Bible open and read it to yourself. Read the Word of God for the purpose of teaching. Third, we take heed to our teaching when we give proper attention to how we exhort in our preaching. Verse 13, give attention to reading and to exhortation. Bridges has a lot to say on this. Uh, Exhortation or application of sermons should not be just merely moralistic or merely motivational. But rather, according to Charles Bridges, they need to address the spiritual state of our audience. Who are our hearers? Are they saved? Are they unsaved? If they are unsaved, of what sort are they? Are they hardened atheists? Are they apathetic atheists? Are they legalistic religionists? Are they simply ignorant and untaught? Maybe they've been wrongly taught about the gospel. If they are believers, what sort of believers are they? Are they mature Christians who have made great progress in holiness? Are they casual and careless? Are they struggling with their faith in the middle of great trials? Who are they in their spiritual state? Exhort and apply the Word of God to their spiritual state. In 1651, the Church of Scotland drew up a resolution which they called a humble acknowledgement of the sins of the ministry. And there is a section that deals with exhortation in preaching. Here were the sins they confessed. Not studying to know the particular condition of the souls of our people, that we may speak to them accordingly. Not keeping a particular record thereof, though convinced of the usefulness of this. Not carefully choosing what may be most profitable and edifying. A want of wisdom and application to the several and different conditions of souls. Not being careful to bring home the point by application. Not speaking 
the same with the reverence which becomes His word and message. Give attention to reading and to exhortation. Paul says, take heed to yourself and to the teaching. One, there is a sure warrant of success. We will save both ourselves and those that hear us. Two, there's a contingent. Take heed to yourself. Three, take heed to the teaching. Fourth and last, the warrant for ministerial success implies that we are persevering in both of those. Self-discipline and the teaching is something that we do not just here and there or in spurts, but in persevering consistency. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. Remain in them. Dwell in them. Be consistent in it. Any minister can make a great effort for a brief period of time. But consistency year in and year out will produce fruit. If my memory serves me correctly, I recall a a recorded interview with Dr. John MacArthur. And a young man interested in the ministry asked Dr. MacArthur, What is your secret to preparing powerful messages? Dr. MacArthur's answer. Keep your butt in the chair until the work is finished. And then do that week after week for many years. Now I can see this young man's jaw just go. Because he's expecting what? Some great spiritual mystery. But his words are an encouragement. The faithfulness of the minister, the consistent faithfulness of the minister, to attend to his godliness and to the teaching of the Word of God will produce fruit. It will produce success. And that ought to encourage us. Because we know our faults so well and we know our failings better than anybody else except the Lord. And there's not a one of us that walks out of the pulpit who doesn't feel like a miserable failure. What's going to keep us Pursuing the hope that consistent, faithful work will produce fruit. Now, why are these things contingent? If we're talking about the promise of blessing from an exalted, sovereign Christ, then how is it that Paul can say that in essence, that in doing this, you will save yourself and those that hear you? Well, in this passage before us, Paul presupposes that the minister is taking heed to self-discipline and to teaching. His personal life and his doctrine are guarded and watched. 
In other words, the alternative is what? A sinful life of hypocrisy, covered up, shielded, or those who have abandoned sound doctrine and whose notion of self-discipline is legalistic at best. In this case, the faithless minister no longer is in the realm of orthodoxy. And so Paul can say this is contingent because if you don't do this, where are you going to wind up? In ungodliness and doctrinal error. It is my experience that where one of these, that is between the discipline and the teaching, that where one of these is not maintained, the other inevitably falls as well. If sound doctrine is abandoned, sooner or later, self-discipline will become self-indulgence. But usually, I believe it's the other way around. That the minister engages in some private sinful actions for such a long period of time that he finally begins to accommodate his doctrine to excuse or cover his sin. And that's why these two must go hand in hand together. And why they are contingent. Nonetheless, we must remember that in God's mercy, He uses the means of grace to bless His people. And there are times when even a faithless man will be used of God in the means of grace. He has no reason to be presumptuous, but God in His mercy does it. We read the story of Samson using the jawbone of the donkey to slay the Philistines. And we laugh and joke about the instrument. And I've always taken that instrument as a symbol of the man wielding it. The miracle is not that God used the jawbone of the ass. It's that He used Samson. But He used him because He gifted him. And there is a tremendous paradox that I don't think I understand. But it is possible for a gifted man to not watch his life and yet still be used. I think we've all seen it. God has declared to us that a faithful minister, one who pays attention to himself, who disciplines himself, who pays attention to the teaching that he has received and how he teaches it to others, will over time see the blessing of God in his ministry, in the salvation of the elect and the sanctifying of the saints. So that we ought to enter into the ministry with this confidence and with this expectation. Let me give you some applications, some encouragements, and we'll close. First, the connection between God's promises to save and sanctify His people and the use of ministers as His gifts to accomplish this is so close that we may rightly expect to see these things accomplished as a result of our ministry. Positively, that means that when we see these things under our ministry, we are to be encouraged that God is giving His seal of approval to us as ministers. How do I know that God approves of my ministry? How do I know 
the church hasn't made a mistake and called an ungifted man. Me. How do I know that they didn't make a mistake and that I'm really not gifted at all? And don't tell me I'm the only one that's ever thought that. Listen to Spurgeon. In regeneration, a new and heavenly mind must be created by omnipotence, or the man must abide in death. You see then that we have before us a mighty work for which we ourselves are totally incapable. No minister living can save a soul, nor can all of us together, nor all the saints on earth or in heaven work regeneration in a single person. The whole business on our part is the height of absurdity unless we regard ourselves as being used by the Holy Ghost. On the other hand, the marvels of regeneration which attend our ministry are the best seals and witnesses of our commission. The apostles could appeal to the miracles of Christ and to their own miracles as proof that, uh, excuse me, appeal to, uh, to, and to those which were they are wrought in His name. We appeal to the miracles of the Holy Ghost, which are as divine and real as those of our Lord Himself. The apostles wanted to prove or to show their seal of apostleship. Part of that was the sign gifts given to them. How do we substantiate or see the seal of our ministry? Simple question. Is God using your ministry to save the elect and sanctify the saved? That's it. Not, are you popular? Have you had a thousand downloads on Sermon Audio yet? It is not education or degrees, although these are helpful. It's not doctrinal acumen. The final issue is this. Does God own your ministry by blessing it? It is not the right format of your sermon. If so, if God uses you to sanctify His people and to bring His elect to Christ, that is His mark his seal on your ministry. Now, there is a negative to this. When the blessing of God, which He has promised ordinarily to give, is withheld, then we must ask ourselves, why? In general, we go something like this. God just simply chose not to bless. Charles Bridges won't let you get away with that. He says, doesn't God promise His blessing as the ordinary expectation of the minister? If so, how do we explain the lack of it? We must not slumber in acquiescence without self-inquiry. Why is the promised blessing withheld? Do we fervently seek and cherish His influence? Are we actively stirring up the gift of God that is within us? 
God is indeed absolutely sovereign in the distribution of his blessing. But by his command to seek, he has pledged himself that we will not seek in vain. What Bridges goes on to say is that we must consider one of the reasons is our own lack of the pursuit of godliness. You see, I'm persuaded that one reason the doctrine of the means of grace is so hard for us is that when we do not see success in our ministry, and yet God has promised it, the conclusion is, I need to examine myself. If my preaching bears little or no fruit, it is much easier to adopt a new method than to examine the messenger. In fact, Bridges goes on to suggest that in the complete absence of God's blessing on a ministry, the conclusion might be that the man was not gifted to begin with. So first application then. The connection between these two things is sure. Secondly, the need of the hour then is gifted men. Don Donnell and Jim Adams said it this morning. What do we need? We need men. And to that I would say we need gifted men. We need men who are gifted with the ability to open God's Word so that with confidence and with godliness of life to support it, they can say, this is what God says. And God will bless that. Our churches, our members, should know us First and foremost, as preachers. Not if we are set apart to the preaching ministry. Not, he's tolerable in the pulpit, but he's so good at administration. I was visiting a church one time, a member came up to me and said, We love our pastor. He's not an Arca church. And I said, why do you love your pastor so much? Answer, because we're in the middle of a building project and he's the only pastor I've ever known who understands construction. There are some who say we love our pastor because he's such a great counselor. And that's good. He's a great administrator. It's fine. But first and foremost, there needs to be the gift of preaching. I'm not a church historian. I don't even play one on the internet. To my knowledge, most revivals have been carried on by what? Preaching. Men. Read Jonathan Edwards' narrative of surprising conversions. I'm sorry, whatever the name of it is. It's left me right now. 
there's a paragraph when he says that it wouldn't surprise him if God converted the world in a week. Because the preaching of Whitfield and his own preaching was so attended with blessings. He says that there was rarely a week that went by when at least a dozen people did not stop off at his house seeking him out and asking him, what must I do to be saved? They sought him out. We need preachers. We need gifted men. Men to be a blessing to the church. Third, if the means of grace is a sufficient means for the salvation of souls, then it implies that when we preach, we are preaching Christ. The goal of the means of grace is to communicate the benefits of the exalted Christ to sinners. We must give information. We must give history, grammar. But we, and we must give moral instruction and systematic theology. But bottom line, above all, we must preach Christ. In my own personal journey, it started with a group of men who preached Christ every sermon. But they did it in such a manner that it was odious. The text was manipulated or abused or abandoned. Christ was found in every allegorical turn of phrase that you could find. Sometimes the example. Turn the book of Exodus, find the reference to the bush. And the entire sermon was out about how picking berries from a bush was like bringing people to Christ. And, and I just go... And so I resolved I was going to be different. As a young man coming through college, I said, no, 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 no. I'm not going to be one of these froth of the mouth guys. I'm going to be a teacher. I'm going to open the text and show them the deep things of God. And I bought into the error that all I need to do is preach to the people in front of me. In the end, what that meant, that, was, that while I was preaching to the saints, I was never preaching Christ to lost sinners. There's much about His ministry that I object to. But I do like this. Timothy Keller says, if you want to see people saved, don't preach just to the people who are in front of you. Preach to the people that you want to see them invite. And they'll invite them. Let me close with this then. Because we have a warrant to expect success, gentlemen, when you preach, do so with faith. Do so with confidence that what you do is imparting Christ to your hearers and to yourself. Again, Spurgeon. Happy shall we be if we preach believingly, always expecting the Lord to bless His own Word. 
This will give us a quiet confidence which will forbid petulance, rashness, and weariness. If we ourselves doubt the power of the gospel, how can we preach it with authority? Feel that you are a favored man in being allowed to proclaim the good news. Rejoice that your mission is fraught with the eternal benefit to those before you. Let the people see how glad and confident the gospel has made you. And it will go far to make them long to partake in its blessed influences. Preach with faith. Because God has given us warrant to expect success. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we long to see a greater degree of this success. Our nation mourns for the weight of sin which we have produced. Father, most merciful God, send forth laborers into Your harvest. Fill our pulpits again with men who open the Word of God. We have an abundance of religion. We need gifted men to preach the Word of God. Grant it, Father, And grant that we may trust You in the carrying out of the task of the ministry. That we may do so with joy and with encouragement and with consistency. Bless our ministry to this end, Father, that You may be glorified and that the exalted Christ who gives gifts to His church may receive all the praise. In His name and in the name of our Redeemer alone we pray and ask. Amen.